1: Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And welcome to The Food Fight, where we offer a different perspective on food culture issues around Australia and the world.
2: We'll talk with chefs, producers, business owners and experts to hear their stories and find out what makes them tick.
1: Today we're speaking with Christian Hampson from Yerrobingen Rooftop Farm in Everly about the native food industry, the lack of indigenous representation within it, and possible solutions to the problem. Okay, welcome to another Food Fight podcast. My name's Steph Postuma, joined by Simon Evans. Hello. And we find ourselves here in the middle of Everly with some birds chirping in the background with Christian Hampson from Yarrabingen. Welcome, Christian. Thanks so much for joining hey, us, mate. All, thanks, Yeah, cool. Well, we usually start off with an acknowledgement of country, but um, we'll get you to say a few words for us, if yeah, you yeah, don't
0: mind. Yeah, I'm um, Christian, uh, Manaruruwoyarang, Dagabumyanga, Galiguliora. Perfect. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's better than you normally do. <laughs> <laughs> much better. Man. Much better.
1: Um, Christian, look, let's just get started. Uh, tell us. Let's start. Let's start with you. How, how did you get into this? In, in, into this? Into this place? Tell us a bit about your background.
0: Uh, well, I suppose uh, I worked for over twenty-three years in national parks and cultural heritage. So, was really always really interested in different aspects of culture. Obviously, that was part of my role. Um, my technical skill, I suppose, was in things like conservation of rock art and but then got in more into the overall management and working with community and then very much kind of this idea of how do I get involved in empowering community and, and I suppose working in government for a long time, I got to the point that I thought, well, this is just the wrong way to do it. So a few years ago, I went back and did my business degree at UTS and then decided that leveraging in the private space was a great way to get you know, cultural sustainability, which is essentially embedded with environmental sustainability for us so that was that was the idea was to get into that and then um i met the director of this site um through my old job and he sort of liked the way that i operated and sort of said to us would you guys be interested in in doing some stuff here at south everly to sort of bring the community back into the space i suppose so that was what essentially most of our projects are about amazing
1: cool um and well then, let's talk about Yerabingen. Like, how did the pro- tell us about the project first for people who haven't heard of Yerabingen? Let's give us a brief sort of over overlay of what it is.
0: So we're pretty lucky here. We, we got offered this opportunity to, to to pitch an idea around how we might use what they, they call a rooftop farm, and for us, we were like what's a rooftop farm? Does that mean they're going to have like cows? I was looking at the locomotive workshop and thinking, are they going to put cows and chickens on the roof? Why are they asking us? When we looked at it, we actually started to be inspired by some of the rooftop spaces that particularly First Nations people in Canada um, that are around cultural spaces. Um, But we wanted to turn on its head and bring together, you know, our approach to to permaculture, which we think has been ripped off us anyway, permaculture. (laughs) And sort of this idea of bringing that together indigenous land and, management knowledge and knowledge of plants and then putting it in a an interesting sort of corporate space almost it's like you're overlooked by corporate buildings and it's like here you go here's something that's really weird someone said to us that one day is it a farmer is it a gardener if you can't tell the difference then it's worked (laughs) Mm. perfect so if people if people go up there people go onto the rooftop
1: what what can they expect to see
0: well, it's, we've got uh, over two two and 2,500 plants, over 40, 40 species. We s- always say that it's 100% edible, but uh, not all, all edible to humans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the idea is... is obviously, edible is tasty. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's bio, bio, <laughs> you you di- can eat it. So the biodiversity, so obviously having the pollinators and everything in there. Yeah, I, I agree. Everyone talks about edible flowers. I haven't had too many that taste good. Yeah, yeah. they taste it of flowers. Just means it doesn't kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then it's, uh, and then you've got this beautiful space here in South Heavily overlooks looks uh, Alexandria. Um, four floors up. It's 580 square metres. Um, a bit of an engineering exercise. So those things are always are. The hardest thing was to keep it on the roof. So we didn't want it to go through the roof. So the great thing is is that the model we came up with can be adapted to existing roofs across, across the city. I mean, there must be hectares of rooftops across Sydney. So... Mm. That's part of the idea. Is is a prototype. His and all the plants had never been used before in that environment. So the idea was, is here you go. We've co-designed this with the community, which is what we did use a collaborative design approach. And here's and this and this is working. So we can. When people say to us, "Oh, you can't use these plants," we can say, "Well, oh, yes, you can." Here you go. Come and visit our garden.
1: Yeah, amazing. Um, and then, so what? When you when you began began Eurobinten and began this sort of endeavour. What were the original sort of goals of of, of the farm slash garden itself?
0: Look, I, I think very much about sustainability. I mean, we, we look at some of those uh, species we've got up there, and carkle is you know a prime example that is is quite popular. So it's a succulent that comes from South Australia and the Kurong. And what gets worrying is with 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 bush foods is that when they become popular, the the, the pressure on wild resources is is huge. So so why not think about growing these things? Closer to with the people who want to use them, um, and in a, and in a space that's possibly not even going to be used, and and then to take away those sort of those food miles and that that impact to wild resources, and create food steps essentially. Mm. I mean, we, we we like the idea that you could have gardens where chefs could be walking up to the top of the building that they're in and cutting fresh fresh um, native foods. But also, I think the other thing was about promoting indigenous knowledge about the environment is 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 another thing that that garden does. So it sort of does that. And that is good because sometimes the idea of food and drink is where we bring people in, but then they actually then come away with a much deeper understanding because they start to get go past that. So, you know, they're all for the native cocktails yeah. and don't worry, I am too. Um, but then they get this deeper understanding about, you know, whether it be about particular species being you know, culturally significant or the fact that indigenous people just didn't wander around and find a feed. There was, a, there was an environmental management and land management mm. component.
2: I think that's a, People tend to think that wild ingredients are just naturally more sustainable and it, it kind of is up to a point when people they get over, over harvested in the wild and it's kind of got to be done in the right way. So obviously the, the more sustainable step is as native ingredients become more popular on menus is to actually you know, cultivate them, farm them um, you know, closer to where they are. Australia is such a massive country that yeah, air miles and, and travel time is such a massive thing. When you're trying to you know source these ingredients
1: did you i mean you mentioned before the the uh, the involvement of chefs and the hospitality industry in coming up and gaining an understanding of these products and things like that was was this i mean we we see in the media and we see on menus like simon just mentioned how 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 it's just proliferated the use of Native and Indigenous ingredients on menus all around Australia in bars and in restaurants, and we'll talk about cosmetics soon as well. But was the hospitality industry and the interest shown by chefs something that kind of... Was it a, was it a sort of a trigger to to allow to allow you to give you some give you some impetus to to make this 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 sort of work? Like, how much did chefs and hospitality play a role in in what you were doing up there?
0: Yeah, well, it was it was interesting, I suppose. I mean, I suppose at first we just thought about well, what sort of reach can we get, um, and that's and with food, and obviously we're aware of a number of people, and we but then when we actually opened the rooftop, the how much um, interest was shown. And then we were shocked. I mean, we got invited to the Delicious Awards and we would sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. And, and there's a native producer thing. And then we won it. And we were like, wow, <laughs> that's pretty bizarre. I mean, and then just the chefs that we we're talking to and then, and then the profile of, of the rooftop. And I think it's because of that idea of that sustainable approach. Um, we've had some pretty amazing chefs come and, come and visit us. But I mean, the other great thing is, is that, you know, chefs that are down the street or... Um, I mean, even 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 now in this you know this COVID time of people cooking at home. I mean, all the interest we've had around, and we've been doing our native cocktail thing as a as a Zoom Zoom course where the stuff comes home. And I think it's this really cool thing. There's this combination of hospitality and chefs, and then there's also about people getting a bit of a local interest in the, where they are around food, and mm. and I think that's a really cool thing. Thinking what's endemic to their area, and maybe putting it in their gardens. Um, but yeah, we I, I think what we really enjoy is is that um, I think for Australia, sometimes what our identity is is, is sometimes lost in food, and I think the for great sure, thing yeah. about native ingredients is is that a it can have that broader Australian um, context, but then also you know somewhere like the South Coast where where Simon is, is you know you can really think, pull things that have just essentially just come from just down the street, yeah. and that, I think they has such a good narrative around us. That's yeah, great.
2: I think like food in general is you know, breaches cultures and, and brings people together um and it gives you a connection to the the country you're in and the, and the land you're in i mean one of the things that moving to australia eight years ago the fact that i had no one was talking about native ingredients and it really was even aware there were kind of native ingredients here because it wasn't in media but no one was talking about it um and most of the countries in europe have sort of started to go back to even the uk which has got like a pretty bad reputation for food at times has gone back to their kind of traditional heritage a lot of foraging of, of native species and Australia's got some of the most amazing and diverse plants and animals here, and they just really weren't used. So I think it's it's um it's definitely a good step of bringing people together, bringing culture together, teaching people about you know history of this country and, and the culture. Like some of the things that just from from talking to people like Christian and, and Fred down south and, and other people. Like every time, I just learn something like ludicrous, or learn about an ingredient that's got like the highest vitamin C, or it's, like, this is few or this is how it grows. It's so, it's so fascinating that I think people, once they have access to some information or be able to see these ingredients, it's really hard not to become quite fascinated
1: with them. Mm. And I guess chefs always have such a reverence. Like I mean, at, at a top level, they always have such a reverence for the ingredients that they source whether they be indigenous or not, they like at, at the top level, chefs want to know who produces their food and they want to mm. know the story behind their food and they want to pay respect to that when they put it on a plate and serve it to people. And if they can convey that story through the way that their food served in the restaurant and stuff like that yeah, too. Pe- so people, it's a sort of a natural progression. People love it. Like to
2: add value, when you, especially that sort of top end cooking, to add value to what you're doing, people love the story behind it. And there's probably no greater like story than the kind of the history of this country that most people just don't know about. Mm. Um, so that, that can add like a for, you know, for us what we're doing at Cavo, that just added another level of fascination for us and our customers, um, and it was always you know, very well received and you know, quite eye-opening for people with a little bit of information we would supply with some of the ingredients we, we, we were serving.
0: Yeah, I think a great thing for our mob is to see, um, I suppose, our knowledge being brought into into the the broader community's um, area, so that. Food, as you said, brings people together. Then then people start to think about well, okay, maybe I should start to be thinking a little bit more about where this comes from. And yeah. then as you say, like it seems to have started up at the upper level of, of, of food but I think now it's getting down to getting down to where people can think about you know more of a street food type thing and I think the great thing is, as I said people people now perceive some of these ingredients as accessible for them to use themselves and I think yeah. that's what's really cool is it's like probably recently, previously as you said it was probably certain chefs who were like okay you go somewhere I mean I, I grew up eating kangaroo mm. and I'm pretty sure that when kangaroo was first served it was like in re- really really high end restaurants and, yeah, yeah. and you know and it's like I look at it and go what I can go out and get a feed of kangaroo, <laughs> but you yeah, know it's got it's got a few native ingredients. Yeah. I think I'm thinking I'm in the wrong game. Yeah, you yeah. <laughs> I think yeah.
2: kangaroo only became like legal to to serve in a restaurant in like 1993, mm. something which is which is like just fucking ludicrous to me. Yeah, you have this like amazing, yeah, quite sustainable meat resource in Australia that's delicious oh. that just w- was not seen as as even a food until. And I think people know, freak out because
0: they think that they're cute. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, we it's a whole, there's a whole 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 interesting discussion we've had the, a bit of
2: backlash from when we did a thing on Studio 10 where we cooked kangaroo we had quite a few one star reviews on Facebook and some emails yeah, and they, yeah. I posted like a wallaby tail pasta dish yeah. like for a dinner we did the other day and they had like same again the, little, the people being like oh my god how can you eat a kangaroo wow. <laughs> they're so cute it's, it's, it's sustainable
0: a couple, couple, yeah, yeah. couple of vegans getting on can, us can as well, oh, well. <laughs> yeah hopefully
1: we get past that very, like quite quickly and I think that I think that hopefully we are with with what we're talking about now, and mm. the way that um, food culture is moving and an understanding of sustainability. Mm. Yeah, but well, you can't argue with sustainability science and you know land management practices because yeah, it's just more sustainable. The, na- <laughs> the narrative yeah. of
2: Aboriginal history you said is that nomadic bush tucker foraging um, yep. kind of lifestyle, which which isn't isn't true. Um, so maybe you want to just sort of discuss. Um, maybe the the what the sort of narrative has been of that nomadic bush Tucker picket, it, it just survives. Yeah,
0: I, I think I think that um, the idea of the you know the noble savage and 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 mm. that you know they just walked around in small groups and you know it's almost like they like we all lived in the desert and yeah, yeah you know whereas most of Australia clings to the eastern seaboard and all of these so I mean you're talking about essentially you know over 300 different cultures in Australia and language and cultural practices is driven by your environment so you know if you live in a coastal environment you're, you you've got a, a, a different um lens on on the landscape as you too as if you live in the snowy mountains where i might where my grand, grandparents come from or whether you come from the desert or they're all they're all got different i mean all got different um ways of seeing the world and 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 that's in their food as well and and, and how they manage that space and i think yeah, there are there are harsh parts of the country where you would have been. You know, but it was in many cases what they were moving for was not food. It was, it was, um, it was water. And I mean, the interesting thing is when you think about the history of Sydney, and I've done some work on a few garden designs during research, is is that um, you know through this area and down to the south, down to Randwick, if you look on the early map, it's it's called the barren barren dunes, and basically it was seen as a desert here, even like right here. It was full of bush sucker and. Medicine plants and amazing, you know, refuges and and probably luckily early on, that meant that that was a space that the local Aboriginal groups could could be in while you know, the water was being poisoned in the Tank Stream by mm. all the people that were here in, in the early settlements. So, what what is seen as barren is is, is another person's you know plentiful plate. So, mm. I think you're right. I think the great thing is is that, what better way to talk about food origin. You know, people talk talk about food origin and they know where it came from. Well, what better food origin when it's like a ten thousand year old story about yeah. a particular plant, about how you manage it? So yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: Can you can we talk about then? I mean, you've mentioned how chefs would come up to yarrowingen and, and pick a few things here and there, but it's not at the scale to be able to be a sort of a commercial farm. Yeah. Um, what sort of ways? And, and we were talking before we started about some of the things that you're interested in or looking at doing in, in terms of doing things on a on a on a bigger scale and a more in you know producing sustainable native plants and things like that um, to a commercial market. What what sort of what sort of things have you sort of looked at, or where do you see some um, you know positive prospects for the future in in those sorts of things?
0: Well, we're definitely um, wanting to see an ethical supply chain be created that that is easy to access, and I think I think there are many chefs and many people and who want who want native products and want native plants who would love to be able to go straight to the Aboriginal community and and, and invest in them, um, but find it difficult. So. And it's difficult to navigate. And sometimes there's companies that look like they're indigenous owned, and they're not. Or they might be partially indigenous owned, but then you, you don't know how much of that money goes into the community. So there's a there's a there's a few major indigenous producers we've been talking to, and and that, that idea of setting up this ethical um, supply chain, but then also giving the communities themselves the opportunity to grow plants again that you know and and replenish that practice. Yeah. So the idea is is that we're going to. Um, Put together a number of us and, and 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 see a way that we can actually bring stuff to market on a commercial scale. And, and and we're looking at food, but we're also looking at a lot of the projects I'm involved in now is about designing commercial landscapes that have forageable components for them, but also about bringing endemic species back into that landscape. So people being able to read the landscape as as it once was. Mm. And then again, then there's this whole thing about well, like, you know, there's superfoods. There's there's properties of oils and things like that and that we're, we're really interested in, in investigating and helping communities sort of essentially build um, capital in their own communities and that's like cultural capital, not just not economic, just economic capital as well. Mm. So what like,
1: can, we're talking about the ethical supply chain and I think that like, we might be assuming that our listeners understand what mm-hmm. the issue is. Um, can you talk a bit about why we face an issue when it comes yeah, to so, an ethical so supply the bush chain. Food,
0: so, for example, the bush food industry is probably getting up around $80 million, um, at the moment. Um, less than 3% of that is supplied by Indigenous companies. Um, but there are a lot of companies that sound Indigenous or, you know, yeah. or they've. and I think that, you know, the, the issue is there also is, is that, um, I mean, intellectual property gets talked about a lot, but actually there's more community, you know, Intellectual property is probably a better way because you know these things are about you know particular groups and regions like acquired knowledge yeah there, and, like I, like and, the, and I think the only way for often that to be protected properly is, is that they are the ones actually running the business and and, and taking the advantage of, of, of that opportunity and you know the social I mean that's the thing as, as indigenous people our our social relationships brings a certain different style of social capital to to the discussions so the groups that I've been talking to is very much about how do we Manage, you know, some of these companies that come in and want to, you know, buy out knowledge, mm. and or buy out names of things. Or as soon as something starts to move, they they want to be on, they want to be on that. And if you look at other um, countries where superfoods have taken off, say South America, uh, all of a sudden, I mean, Kakadu plums a good example here. Mm. Go is um, you know, it's probably getting too expensive for the community that used to live off that species. Yeah, so right. I think it'd be cool to be able to also create the nutritional opportunity for remote and regional communities to be able to have those things available to them very at a wholesale level and then what would they like to offer the market and that's what we're trying to do is there can be a different scale or scope it can be large but it's like a bit of a sort of a collective idea around supply chain so you know different communities could be growing different different species that have very much come from their areas um, and then the market can access it directly and say well they know that this has come and that, that eth- ethical part is about what you know as the person if you do a parallel with art so indigenous art there's some issues around the way indigenous artists were treated and whether they're paid fairly and mm. and so forth so if this market is rising it should create a massive community benefit rather than maybe just like a short little boom for certain people i mean i've heard different companies saying oh we employ aboriginal people and it's like well then that's good but what do you employ them to do mm. go and pick fruit you know, it would be better if they were being employed to be the, you know, the, you know the, the CFO or the CEO or something like that. So I think we're 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 hoping also to look at the opportunity to actually define a brand with community around what what that looks like, and rather than someone possibly coming in to do, do it. So is it, you know, it's community endorsed ethical supply chains and and that and then the story is there then that means you can as a chef you'll be able to talk directly to that community about what that plant means to them so that not only when they're cooking it they actually know enough about it to oh, pay I mean, that proper respect yeah the,
2: like the knowledge of cooking some of these ingredients like a lot of time it's if you have access to someone who knows about it it's, it's been massive trial and error and I had some uh yams from uh, northern territory and like on um meningrida is a kind of social company uh, in Ireland who, who harvest wild ingredients and supply them um they'd put some instagram videos of them cooking these little blueby yams and they came out like beautiful creamy like amazing huh. little little vegetables and i tried everything i tried like in, in coal on top of coal like sous vide them fermenting them like brining them all these things and i couldn't get them like <laughs> like to a point where I, I thought like i could use them and i was looking at their stories and like, i was like how like how? And they're like, You're gonna have to come up here and they'll have to show you. And and like that, that access to information I think is, is kind of important to put put the ingredients in context and being able to use them properly. So
1: um, I mean it's hard to catch up with
2: 80,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well that's the thing. It's hey. a, it's
1: it's such a mammoth task, Christian, because there's so many different things that we're talking about. I think that like something that you mentioned before was, you know, potentially Finding new ways to cultivate these ingredients, mm. with, and 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 locating them closer to metropolitan areas to enable easier access and supply. But then there's there's I'm going to make an assumption, but there's probably ingredients out there that have to be foraged that you can't necessarily cultivate on a commercial scale. Um, we also talk about the invo- You're also talking about the involvement of communities around Australia and 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 getting that supply mm-hmm. chain. So like. In what does what does sort of an ideal sort of landscape of ethical supply look like to you yeah. down the track?
0: So yeah, I think you're right. They're a combination of urban agriculture, um, commercial approach, and then I think the key the key the key leverage can be. I mean, in New South Wales, um, Aboriginal groups um, own you know significant pieces of land that currently. Um, some of them are uh, environmentally sensitive, so they, they can't have development on them. But what they can have is they can have the replenishment of the natural landscape. And I think that's another opportunity is, is that it can actually, and particularly post-bushfire, that some of these species can be re, you know, reintroduced onto land to not only create a forageable economic outcome, but an environmental restorative outcome. So I think that's a great opportunity is that, you know, these species were there naturally and they've been cleared and you know, and, and because they weren't seen as value and, and then in many cases those that that land, be them in arid regions and other regions, is now of less value. But if it had those plants restored into the space and then also that would then create better water quality. There's so many, so many environmental benefits, the cultural benefits of, of those communities having those plants back in their in their endemic plants back in their landscape and then, and then the opportunity to be able to forage them and I mean, and because I think those those ones, and then, then you say there's the sort of okay, what are the species we want to be able to propagate, bring, and that might be also not just about ones that we want to um, harvest, but it might be about taking them back out to communities. And then other ones are for us are about when we're doing landscaping stuff in in commercial projects about species that we want to we want to we want to teach people about and i think that's the other great thing about it is is that people learn so much off these plants not just about eating them but their place in the landscape and um you know when everyone talks about about dark emu and you know the the Merlong, the munyang the daisy and such a important plant not because mm. it was just because it was a staple but about what it says about the myth of indigenous yeah. land management not existing and the fact that this is a plant that needed active management. Um, and so I think that's probably the idea is this is sort of this blended blended approach. And I I mean, ultimately, it would be great to see all the land that's owned by Aboriginal community have, have those species restored onto them. But then great for people to turn around and go, you know what, I want to put this in my backyard, I want to put this on my balcony because A, again, what we're also doing is helping all of our birds and bees and, and all those sorts of things by creating mm. diversity and, and even doing it by having a rooftop in the city is, is, is helping. Mm. Yeah, I'm, G- I'm
2: desperate to get some murnong on a menu. <laughs> yeah. like ever since I read Dark Emu, I was like, oh my god, I want that vegetable.
0: <laughs> well, again, they're, they're, they're an interesting one because um, if you get them at the wrong time, the taste can go very, very horrible Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are different species too so I mean that's interesting there's an alpine version and a few others and so they've got a slightly different trick to them But yeah um, this is the
2: kind of maze that we've had to go down of, of the names and, and variations of species yeah. within kind of um, like Kakala Car- for, for example mm. seems to be lots of different species of pig's face and there's different ones yeah. from South Australia that grow here and they all get kind of put under this one umbrella of names so from a, from a kind of restaurant point of view when you're ordering like a lily-pilly you don't oh, quite yeah. know which species of lily pilly it's going to be, and they all yeah, I and they seem to grow at different <laughs> times. Like even even in just Wollongong area, you see different slightly different variations, different trees, you know, coming to fruit at different times of the year. Um, and then obviously the knowledge of of knowing what they are and how to use them and their their their, you know, their, their tastes and benefits is, is is quite a maze. Which again is why we, <laughs> we need, need information about these things. Mm.
0: Did you, is, is Myrland commercially available? Can you get it? No, so, I mean, it, up until it was a threatened species. Well, it still is a threatened species, technically. Um, so very much Victoria, a couple of major nurseries started propagating it again. And we've got some on, on the rooftop um, that we got a couple of parent plants and then um, propagated them. The seeds are like a dollar a seed. Jesus yeah wow. yeah yeah so but then the, the, the aim is, is and that's what I want to get, a, get get space where is to, used to have meadows of them essentially mm. and that's how much of them you get in mean, this idea of yeah, bring, bringing that practice back in and I think that's the great thing about it is, is that you know chefs want to use this stuff and then I think the, the community want to remember you want to have, be back involved in yeah, having sure. these things available not just not just about the production of food but about how that how that impacts and creates positive outcomes in their communities about that practice becoming being returned i think is, is another great thing you know getting young people involved in this space getting them out out, out in there and propagating your plants and stuff i think is for for many young people is something that they would enjoy rather than maybe you know pouring a coffee or yeah yeah <laughs> for sure mm.
1: christian when we talk about um the difficulty that that Chefs and maybe cosmetic cosmetic producers and and things like that have in potentially deciphering what is indigenous owned or what mm. is ethical supply chain. What are some of the sort of issues you see there, and is there a way that we can we can make that process easier for people u- using these ingredients?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, even us as an, as you know, one hundred percent indigenous owned business find it difficult. So mm. it's it's literally having to really like go into this this space of of. Um, investigating it and and I suppose that's probably what we've started to see is that say for instance like the developers and the landscape architects and architects that we work with and everything they're sort of saying Christian how can we make this a bit easier and I suppose that's the idea is we're trying to think about well okay how how can the ones that we know about start to reach out to other ones and become a sort of a collaborative network a that helps we can help each other but then b is identifiable As almost a collective collective brand, and I think that's what we're we're looking at. Is you know, it's like you know, people talk about organic and all that sort of stuff, and that sort of stuff. Sort of, but we're we're just thinking, well, okay, what 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 should it look like? If someone really wants to do the right thing, and I mean, there's some pretty interesting examples recently where people probably thought they were using you know, indigenous-owned products, supplied products, especially around um, beauty products and stuff like that, and then get found out that it's not and then they get hammered essentially i think um that they're, they're, they're trying to do the right thing and that's, so I, know, I think a we need more 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 producers in the space um because as i said you're probably talking about three percent um and then and that's and there's there's a whole suite of issues around the, the the barriers that are there for indigenous people to get into business and that's one of the things that we we looked at is you know we really want to take our experience and try and help people who want to do stuff. You know, what would normally happen in the industry is you're probably looking to you know beat everybody down, you know, be know yeah. be the top of it. But that, that's definitely what we want to do. We actually see there's so much space. It's more about you know they always talk about the piece of the pie and everything. Well, you know, there's everybody still got ingredients they can bring before the pie even gets cooked in, in this space. I mm. think and mm. there's lots of depth of knowledge, and I think we've initially started to look at some. Companies in New South Wales, but now starting to reach out to companies across Australia who are Indigenous companies who have a similar, I suppose, ethos to us, and 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 have approached it. And then how do we how do we come together and start to create that sort of network that'll that'll support it and then make it identifiable and easy for for, sh- for chefs or you know any other any other people who want to get a hold of produce that's actually come from communities and ethically come from communities. Mm. Yeah. Do, do you see that taking the form of?
1: I mean, you mentioned organic, like the way we got to organic certification mm. in this country was through a, a, a long process of figuring out what that means and what that looks like. And then you and now it's a, like a, you have to go through, jump through legal hoops essentially or, or get the right cer- mm. right practices in place in order to be certified organic. Do you see something similar yeah, working look, I in this space? Yeah, I mean, you've got,
0: you've got Supply Nation and look, and some people probably have gone through that and Supply Nation, um, look, we, that's... That, it, it, that essentially concentrates on Indigenous procurement policy spaces um, but you can be certified if you're 50% Indigenous owned which right. is, you know, in some instances that's really good but I mean, some instances you're talking about um, well, I mean that's they say registered is 50%, 51% Indigenous owned is, is, is certified Indigenous business now, the other 49% could be owned by a massive multinational in China, mm. but it would for all intents and purposes look very similar to 100% owned business so our model was very much when we went forward was not about sort of being one of these sort of cliched um, sort of I mean, it's often called black cladding what, what the other idea was, was that, is that you know I'm an indigenous business I'm an indigenous business owner i I'd Want to run my business, and we do run a business it's exactly the same as any other business does in Australia. It happens to be that you know the person who owns it is, is, is Indigenous, but then we also want to be able to then invest in Indigenous entrepreneurs. Mm. And so we're down the track, keen to see how we can, whether it be our experience for mentoring or investment or attract investment for other other companies to, to basically grow the share that Indigenous companies have. Mm. Do you?
1: I mean. Do you, do you worry do you worry especially I mean and maybe we can maybe talk about this in the beauty products sort of sphere as well because you mentioned before we started about just how how much it's proliferating in that space mm. do you worry that if this isn't activated in like that you kind of face a time scale or or or, the, or something needs to happen within a certain amount of time or, or things will get lost because I'm gonna just spitball but like in the beauty product space, it seems to me that the story of an ingredient isn't told in the same way that it is in the food industry. And potentially the reverence for an ingredient isn't isn't shared to the same level as chefs have for it. So someone purchasing a, a face cream that has kakadu plum in it on Instagram from a maker... They've heard of kakadu plum and they know that it's yeah. that it's good for your skin or whatever it might be yeah, and the on the and they want it more than the story they want it in the, the ingredient yeah they want the ingredient do you, do you see do you see the story being lost in that in in that industry more so like is that a, is that a concern?
0: yeah yeah and again there are some really good indigenous producers who are getting involved at, at you know at a certain scale but it i mean that that i mean that market is 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 huge yeah and, and you're right it's it's about them wanting to understand these you know essentially from us medicinal properties i mean we see we see food as medicine as well so mm. um yeah i think it's 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 hard because you're competing with these massive companies who will come in. And, and and if I'm a, if I'm a small indigenous company and some big large company comes to buy my knowledge and then I get a short term, short term win out of it, it's, it's hard to when you are by yourself to go, Oh, well I, oh, this is a great way for me to sustain myself. But yeah. then ultimately after that many, there are a, a and that few businesses. breaks well, that generational yeah. wealth
2: chain then of, yeah. of, of selling something for a short term gain. It doesn't actually but then help that, your kids and their kids. No, that's, nah, that's right. You know,
0: it's, it's, and, and it's not, it's, it's, I, th- I think the interesting thing in Australia was is, is very much, and I think this is where Indigenous people want to go with their companies, is we were very much about, um, you know, before the share market and all that sort of stuff, is, is that strong companies were about, you know, almost like this family model. Mm. You know, small to medium enterprises was what Australia was built on and then we sort of all of a sudden jumped into this global space where it's all about shareholders and it's got nothing to do with about the people who work for you or whatever. So I think the space that I think that Indigenous companies can go back into is, is actually being these... I mean, there are some good Australian companies who, who, who do this and I think there are a lot of European companies. It's a it's, it's number, of, number of places, such as Scandinavia and Germany and that where they actually, small to medium enterprises is very much the way they like their market to yeah, operate. It's kind so, of
2: going back into more owned by the community, mm, not owned by the yeah. workers kind of models.
0: Yeah, and that's what I think for Indigenous communities is, is the opportunity. And the good thing is, is that they can have that at whatever scale suits them, delivers for them. And the good thing is, is there's... You know, they can feel empowered to say no, and I think that must be hard when you're someone who has, you know, a big multinational in your face saying, "Hey, we'll give you this crazy amount of money that you probably I'd never you thought you'd down, ever, that you, you'd of money. never hear of." Mm. And then it's like, "Well, what do I do?" And then, you know, am I am I selling my mob out? And and and, look, and don't get me wrong, there is there is a whole larder full of stuff that is not even out there, and it's rightly not out there because community are very wary and scared about what's going to happen. Most of the stuff that we talk about is already in the public domain. So, you know, stuff that's not known, if we have it in the garden or whatever, we, t- we don't tend to, to talk about it too much. Um, so, yeah, that idea about how do you build cultural sensitivity into what you're putting out there in the market. Um, and I do know some guys who produce stuff that they produce, you know, stuff that the market, to, to go to the market, so that they can produce other stuff just for their community. And I think that's the other great thing about co designing these approaches, is the community can decide how they want that to work. Mm. and it might be that they just want to we even looked at our, our our model to include things like community to community trading mm. so that what used to happen traditionally around trade can happen again so that community can say here yeah, we want to swap 10 kilos of this for for 10 kilos of what you've got and they, they can have a native diet i mean that's that, that that's the great thing about it i mean so i think it's really hard and i think that that's that's what needs to happen is is is, is i've with it needs to be pushed so that people can can say, well, yeah, all right, we've got Kakadu plumbing in it, but you know, do I want to know that this has come from the community with their endorsement, or or is it actually being ripped off them and and, and bought out by a company, and then nothing really goes into them except some small small money that was paid up front? Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, it just comes down to
2: educating the public and and making people more aware of this because for a lot of people, it just wouldn't be it wouldn't be even on their radar to think that you know this this might be an issue that this this company that's not aboriginal owned yeah. is is using these things and and you know how how are they getting an the ingredient is is kind of forgotten about so I think it's just um i mean especially recently there's been a lot of um a lot of posts full of like instagram accounts and social media about you know black owned businesses and and companies that do you know do things the right way and, yeah. and promoting them, and I guess that's that's just kind of a small step to educating the public. Well, it's like things. that supply
0: chain thing. I mean, if, if the only way to 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 have it work properly is is that Indigenous companies have to have to own and manage the entire supply chain, yeah. everything everything from from production right up to distribution and marketing, and and it may not be all the same company. But I think that's what we're sort of talking about. Is there are there are so many good companies with different capacities that if we join join yeah, up and work and sort of manage that, well, then we, can, we can anyway. we can essentially say, look, well, you know, this is this is you can you can know that you're not going to be you know you're not going to be fucked over essentially because because we're all in that we're all looking to share it rather than destroy each other. And I think mm. that is another game with indigenous companies. We're not we're not trying to put each other into the ground. We're actually trying to help each other grow our grow our um, profile in, in in the market.
1: Mm is is there any sort of conversation with policymakers um, or government about about getting involved in in putting in legislation about ownership and about how how different businesses can can practice in this industry? because our government talks about bridging the gap mm. and this we're talking about here um, employment opportunity. Is there any is there any talk of uh, in this space with
0: policymakers? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, government investment in this space, in business and everything, I always I, I find it a little bit problematic. So, um, it can do. Uh, often, often, I see that you know we we went through and went. We're not going to go for grants. We're not going to go for this because I think sometimes as people see that as revenue and stuff like that, and then essentially you get you get held over to that revenue. And I I think I think for government, it's it, it does need to think about. I mean, the proper economic sustainability has to have an equal, you know, support from government, private industry, and the community. Um, yeah, I, it'd be interesting because I, I mean, I mean, obviously it's free trade these days, so it's you know, it's we live in a we live in a liberal world, and you know, if you do well, good luck to you, and if you don't, tough luck to you. Is essentially the mm, approach yeah, that they, yeah. they they put out there, and and look, to a certain extent, you know, not every Indigenous person will, you know, being being in business, is, it takes it takes a certain amount of drive, it takes it takes different skills. I mean, I went back and studied, you know, such a broad range of, of, of things. I mean, it's probably one of the, you've really got to have so many skills and so many spaces to be successful at, at, at business. And I think that's where communities need to think about, well, okay, what are those skills we need in, in, our, in our community? I mean, you can have the knowledge, but then you, how do you how do you deliver that into a space where it's going to, as Simon said, have long-term um social benefit to the community because it's managed well and, and I, but the but the upside is i think is is that getting this in, getting, getting into this stage allows communities to decide where that is spent and i think with with you know a lot of programs that are government funded that a lot of that money is caught up in administration mm. whereas i think empowering community is definitely a part of it is about going through this this private commercial way that they can that can be you make the calls I mean you know you can make your mistakes and then you can you can make your wins and essentially that's what's been in business is but at the moment it's sort of like risk is is, is not taken because you've got to say oh okay well, your funding's coming from somewhere else whereas yeah. if you're the making the call you make the call you do it
2: yeah I think the government policy seems to be kind of tokenistic at best a lot of time of, of well look we've, we've got this grant there like we've we've yeah. done something so
0: or um, we, or we'll buy all our, um, you know, stationery off, off this particular. I yeah. mean, and they talk about three percent procurement policies. I mean, look, I think they're great if they help people start out, and they, and they. But if you stay in that little pond, if you, if you just stay in that little pond of, of, of that space of government sort of contracts and stuff like that. You're not really, you're not really growing as 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 an enterprise, mm. and, and not really growing your skills as an enterprise, and that's and that's the thing. But I think if it's great, if that gets you a leg up, and you you take that, and it's the seed that might turns you into a, you know, into a big tree. But if if and I mean I, I mean for us, I mean you know we're a small company, but you know you got uh, you don't have to dream big. I think you can say, well, I'm happy to be in the niche I'm in. But you know, how many how many Aboriginal CEOs have we got in in ASX 200 companies? We haven't got any Indigenous. ASX 200 co- listed companies. I mean, that's yeah. one mm. of the things I'm, I'm super keen to see, whether it's us or somebody be on the share market and yeah. you know, mm. be publicly listed. And some people will think, well, you know, that's just a, a weird corporate world. But it's like, well, no, that's that's where a lot of big decisions get made yeah, about yeah, what exactly. happens in the future yeah. of our kids. So yeah, yeah. let's get into that space and, and have our own voice there rather than maybe yeah, being mean, chucked yes. on something as a token.
1: Yeah, mm. I,
2: mean, I think that's, that's a, I mean, Indigenous representation in hospitality is, is is kind of an issue you don't see many indigenous chefs working in high-end restaurants um you know suppliers are still obviously like i said three percent um even things like winemaking and and, you know viticulture Mm. like i don't know of any indigenous winemakers or wine growers particularly i'm I'm sure there are some out there um but it's definitely an issue to move forward on especially on the the food and, and wine side because um, that does have that kind of historical and cultural imp- importance of, of, of growing things in this, and managing this land yeah. um, and managing it in a better way um, especially when it comes to things like water resources and wine, that, that's such a, such a massive issue and there's you know, so much to be learned from, from the history of this country that way so it's definitely um, something which I'm not entirely sure how, how to make this better but um, it's definitely something I think everyone needs to look into um, mm. having that more representation
1: yeah, I get like I guess one of my I don't know, wh- when I asked that question I was sort of also thinking about in terms of ethical supply chains like is there any place for government to step in and and put in regulations around how it can work like how how those things can be implemented and create a system because as we talk about bridging the gap when ethical supply chains aren't created that that industry is passed away from indigenous ownership, and if they can help facilitate an ethical supply chain chain, then then ownership can be taken. Is that is that something is that something on the bo- on oh, the look, radar I think it at all? If
0: they got involved, but I think the problem is, is that they, they as I said, they, they have this idea of not getting you know not restricting trade. No, yeah. not saying, yeah. saying yes, we'll invest. You know, the, you know, we'll invest in indigenous businesses, and and the way they do it is about you know writing business plans and whatever, but ultimately indigenous people have less access to capital and that's what gets you that's that's what gets you skid yeah. in the game is makes money. so you know we'll we'll was regarded as, as as a visionary startup but technically we're not a startup because we didn't get anyone else's money we threw our own money in there we we bootstrapped ourselves and not many people are able to do that and what you find with indigenous entrepreneurs is they're usually a lot older um, they do that sort of thing. They bring their own, their own investment in. I mean, there's 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 organizations such as um, Indigenous Business Australia and stuff. But again, there's this thing about, you know, oh, we've got grants and things like that, but there's multiple hoops to, to jump through. Mm. Whereas when you're at the beginning of your business, you want to be able to really, it's, it is all about that all that um, passion and drive that gets you in there. And then if you're spending a lot of time sort of yeah, bogged down, in paper bogged and, and 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 essentially talking to people that aren't even in the business space, I mean, they're in a government space, so they they just don't understand the pace of things mm. and, and, and you find it very frustrating. And, my, and, and successful Indigenous entrepreneurs that I talk to um, usually go on their own, go on their bat. And they just go to the bank, they get the money, they, 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 they have a crack and then it's just like, you know, and then often what happens is, is that some of these organizations come to us and say, hey, hey, you want to get involved with us? It's like, well, we've already, we've already, we've already gone past that point of, mm. you know, needing mentoring and things like that. And that's, and that's the thing about businesses is mentoring, Mentoring's is good, but I think you should be choosing who your mentor is. It's because yeah, it's, yeah. it's someone who fits your approach, not, and that might not be an indigenous person. Mm. You know, I've got a couple of people that I talk to and it's because I'm impressed by the way that they think and what they, and how they approach business, not, um, yeah, so I mean, that, and that's an interesting thing. I mean, you are probably entrepreneurs in the broader community are a lot younger, and I think again that's something that'd be great if we have more young Indigenous people who feel mm. that they they can they take their ideas and, and t- essentially you know overnight become CEO. You know, there's yeah. there's, there's, there's twenty year old CEOs out there. And I don't think there's any twenty year old Indigenous CEOs. Mm. <laughs> mm.
1: Is you're in your first business? Christian.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I was pretty. I was pretty. I was pretty lucky. Um, yeah. But I mean, again, I think it was it was going and doing the study that we did. I think really, and it was you know with UTS, I think it's so strongly connected to, the, to, the industry. And then one thing we really, I really got right into was this whole thing about design thinking, which is what we use for our design approach. What we use to think about it, and it started off in the weird tech UX world. But I mean, it's. The idea is, is that what you're building is, is human centred. It's empathetic, and that's and that's interesting that that started in the tech space because they do that because they obviously want to draw upon emotion. But when you think about it from the point of building a garden, rather than what are the plants going to be, it's like well, how someone going to feel when they come to this space. And then the great mm. thing is, is while you're designing what plants go in, you're also designing who's going to use it and how they're going to use it. And that's a great thing from a community perspective because you can have so many people with different different uh, experiences contribute to a new innovative idea and I think that's what I learnt so much from there is, is that this probably, you know, what we did here, we do solution design. We just happen to be doing, we, just, we did these gardens here and I think we're always up for something new and that's I think mm. that's essentially our business. So hopefully that keeps us in good stead mm, because yeah. we're always trying to do something new. It's <laughs> great. I think it's a classic example of sort of,
1: you don't know till you need it, until you've got it. Mm. And then you realise, we need more of it. Well, we were just surprised <laughs> that no one else has
0: done it. Yeah. That's okay. the weird thing. That's the business sweet spot. If you step into somewhere that... Essentially, everyone goes, "Oh no!" And our, our biggest problem was is that we were getting we were getting hammered with everybody. Was, Can you be involved in this? Can you be involved in that? And you know, like if I'd had tons and tons and tons of produce to sell, the first couple of months we were up there, we were getting rung up and approached by yeah. everybody. I mean, yeah, yeah. Was a, there was a bit of a Google storm on us for a while. <laughs> 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 cool. What
2: um, what else? So we've spoken about. The garden and and how important it is for people to 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 have that kind of on their doorstep. How, how can people come and visit? What kind of things are you guys doing up there? Yeah, so we obviously
0: up? we're sort of you know work walking our way through this strange times around. Um, so normally we you know they're able to actually access um, things such as our native cocktail course on the rooftop and other events. Um, they're able to often hire the place out, but at the moment obviously we've had to because of the restrictions. It's it's essentially closed um so then we went so we've got virtual tours at the moment of our gardens so people we were like okay people, so many people ring us up we're like okay well we'll just try and work out how we use zoom to yeah. the evil zoom <laughs> everyone's like oh people can jump in on us it. like, yeah oh, shares zoom would have been good actually. yeah yeah <laughs> so um yeah but the idea is is once once we once we get into a sort of a pre-covid world is is yeah, people can come back in, in the space. So we've had different events, we've had music. We've people during the day. It's it, it, when it's back open again. It will it, you can just actually drop in. So it's a public space. Um, so the, and then if you look at our website, there's other opportunities depending. So if we run different workshops. Um, but yeah, and then obviously the landscape garden, um, which is the other garden we've opened. Yeah, here, we just so went down there before. Yeah, just down the road from. Yeah, so that was actually our first project. It just took a lot longer because it's in the construction zone. So there's yeah, this, okay. <laughs> so the other one was like, hey, can you guys do this? And they were like, yeah. And so that idea of that is, is it does have food species in it. Some of the larger ones couldn't grow on the roof um, and a whole bunch of other ones. But then it's, it's also about sort of, you know, this endemic cultural landscape of around here. And it's actually part of the heritage interpretation plan. So the idea is, is that you're learning about all this fantastic civil rights history that you get around South Everly, which is, is so important for... Uh, you know local Aboriginal people, but also you know for migrants and, and and women that that happen on this site. But then the idea is, is you get another layer, so it's making sure that the mosaic has all pieces in it, not just you know the sort of it can people can get a bit you know, especially people who've got weird fascinations with trains, uh, can get a little <laughs> bit can get a little bit excited about trains and forget that there's a whole thousands of years of other stuff that happened here before yeah, yeah, they started yeah. building I mean, trains I mean, here.
2: It's so like we're walking down, when we first got in, it's just like like 10 lemon myrtle trees which I was like oh my god this is like Forage's dream yeah and if i lived around here I'll be coming here at night and, and <laughs> pillaging them <laughs> um, but like Things like that just, just smell really good. And I don't mm. know why they're not used more in public spaces. Like, you, you walk past, you know, so many different myrtles and gums, and you walk past them, they just smell fucking amazing. Yeah. And they just seem like the perfect things to put in place like this. But that they're just not. Also, it would be great if I could forest. Well, and the great thing is, is it's
0: organic. You don't, have to, you don't have to use pesticides and stuff on them mm. because they're natives, and uh, that's what, one of the ideas. I mean, what we would hope here is, I and mean, that's what we're sort of pushing on other developments, is to, is, is to say to these big developers, when you're building commercial landscapes put the trees back that were there or bring in lots of natives and yeah. again this means that this parts of this landscape is now forageable mm. smells great um, it, People can you can bring kids here and we've, we've got um, curriculum we designed for local school kids yeah, yeah. so that yeah. the kids can come and walk over here and see stuff and tell each other about it and say look oh, there's that's lemon myrtle and you can yeah. make that into a tea it's a fascinating
2: or, bit. My, my friend Jared here on Burst and deaths. his partner's kids he, he takes them foraging all the time and mm. whenever they're walking around now they're like looking in the gardens and picking little things and like, they're just naturally fascinated by. Mm. It's definitely, you know, education from a young age about things like this is going to be key. I think it's
0: one of those cases where it's like, oh, you know, people don't use it normally, so it mustn't work. Yeah, And even when we're doing stuff on the rooftop, they're like, oh, can you put natives on a rooftop? And it's like, well can you put any plants on an airsoft? Yeah. yeah, well then natives, and that's like, we're, we're, we're designing some indoor landscapes um, and some major developments in Sydney and being able to bring those smells and that into an office and have people, you know, sort of blur the edge between the landscaping and, and the and the, the building, especially some of these monstrosities that are built around Sydney. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, And so working with a couple of different companies around around that idea about bringing natives, you know, and then the great thing is is we sort of stay, say, oh, how many natives can you get in there? And I said, well, you know, we, we've got to start trying some of them out Mm. but you know in the same way that you bring rainforest species from other places and plonk them in in your office well we've got plenty of we've got an amazing you know array of, of, of species in australia that's yeah such variety yeah you know, and the great thing is again you've got stuff in, in your office all of a sudden that's that's talking to the place you live in and, and yeah, exactly, the yeah. landscape you're on and, and rather than you know some ugly ugly plant called mother-in-law's tongue or yeah. something yeah. like that <laughs> <laughs> and the reason they put them there is because you can't kill them Yeah, yeah they're, exactly. like co- they're like the cockroaches of plants yeah yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: All right. Um, look, we'll we'll start wrapping it up because we've been going for a while now. But is there anything else um, you want you want to talk about, Christian? Anything else you've got going on?
0: Oh, no, I think I think it, as Simon said, I, I, we're really keen to to, to see, and you know, more Aboriginal people involved in in, in driving hospi- hospitality in Australia because it's really. The, I mean, the tourism market that's so connected to this this native hospitality is mm. is huge and is not met and is underutilized. I mean. There is millions of visitors that come to, to Sydney, who again, similar to the way chefs are looking for an ethical product, or are looking for an authentic Indigenous product, and they and 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 there are a few really amazing operators, but it is is difficult, and there's massive opportunities there, and, and food is definitely linked to it. I mean, uh, I think um, one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is is this this idea of um, working with UNESCO who has these creative cities and. Um, I learnt that because uh, there's six of them in Australia and I, th- I think it's Ballarat is for gastronomy so right, it's creative right. gastronomy so they've got they've got this they're looking at this um, native bread making yeah, project yeah, there and so we're now looking at this opportunity to sort of link up to all the some of these international cities and see native grain and bread as the opportunity of a con- conversation space uh, yeah, at an international a, level
2: like the bread making is like a they found bread making tools dating back like 60,000 years in Australia which kind of predates the Egyptians Mm. which was normally considered the first people to make bread by like 40,000 years or something (laughs) which is like a ludicrous fact Um, so I mean yeah bread just seems like obviously has a Massive historical and cultural importance.
0: Well, the great thing is, is the correlations too. I think between different cultures. So when you think about like, so one of the mobs we're talking to is like Fabrizia and the Italians again yeah. in UNESCO city and and the extended family and the idea of food as a community thing. And mm. I, th- I, I think again is is something that's got it's got so much opportunity yeah, for for the, Australia to present itself yeah. that
2: way. There's so much connection. We did a dish for uh, um, like French dinner recently, and it was I probably in the translation but like on papillot like cooked in paper is is you know the same technique as, as cooking in paper bark mm-hmm. so I managed to do a translation like barramundi cooked in paper bark but in French it was probably a really bad translation <laughs> um, but it was really like it was great sort of putting that dish down and telling the customers of, like there's this technique which is very classic French and there's this very historical technique in aboriginal culture but they're basically the same thing mm. steaming fish in a little environment and that kind of connection between like you know two sides of the world completely different time frames but you know, with, with very similar cooking techniques and, yep. and kind of things like that I was finding even hand making flour and stuff I think yeah, is, exactly, is, yeah. is
0: an interesting you know uh, cultural interaction and, yeah, and yeah grinding stones yeah, and yeah so I mean that's something we just started chatting to is, is this opportunity to, to, to bring together like multiple cities from around the world and discuss mm. in particular we're very keen on engaging with some of the in, um, indigenous communities from around the world about where they are around, you know, their their knowledge around native produce, and are they being able to utilise? I mean, there's First Nations people. It's very much more around. Interesting enough, is more around things such as you know animal species, yeah, and how they use utilise those. Whereas, as we were talking earlier, people seem to be a bit scared to want to eat, eat Australian Australian native animals. Yeah, I probably get probably probably get a bit horrified. But I'm uh, one of my favourite uh, meats is, is echidna, So really yeah. <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah it's it's amazing but you know of course we don't want to go out and and knock off a whole heap of echidnas yeah but, um, yeah yeah i mean but i mean there's that whole thing about threatened species and everything too about it yeah there's but go out there's that, is delicious yeah, as well yeah yeah some some are some some are not so good i was told you, you'd think about what it eats before you eat it <laughs> so if it eats carrion you're probably not going to taste too good yeah, but yeah there's, yeah there's but there's a uh, yeah even with kangaroos i mean it's 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 like any mammal you know not all cows are good to eat.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that's kind of the, the the point we're not quite at yet is having that. I mean, there's a couple of companies like Paru do a really good job mm. of sourcing the right species and the right sex at the right time in different areas. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating about bringing First Nations people together from around the world because quite interesting that guy from um, from Dom in yep. Brazil like what he's done yep. for the rainforest and things. Like, that's, he seems to be kind of that extra step ahead of lots of things they're doing, like Peru and, and Brazil and things like that. Well, and
0: I think the other thing is interesting is, is when you start to look into it. I, I think there's there's indigenous people in countries that people don't even realise that there are indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. You know, such as Japan and 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 you know, there's. Uh, I think that's 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 another thing that um, I've, I've, through the UNESCO stuff, I'm thinking, oh, this is this is pretty cool. I mean, that's the that whole thing about you know intangible knowledge. Yeah, how can, yeah. For how sure. can it start to be? protected so cuz some countries do it really well they they protect um, cultural practice and yeah. you know, song language i think language has just started in australia really it's probably a little bit you know, yeah i mean it's, it's just going to help but it's i, I think, think there's,
2: there's a, a bit of a, a wall in the way with aboriginal language with there being so many countries mm. that it's hard you know one is kind of like I remember hearing talk about um, kind of indigenous national anthem. And yeah, people, people were like,
0: well, what language? Well, I, I, I was at a dinner where, where someone said that to me, and oh, maybe and you it, should have told me the that. Maori. Because <laughs> <the Maori. laughs> of course, generous, you know, you I mean, me. I mean, as an indigenous person, I love you know the the Maori the Maori um, language in, mm. in the New Zealand I mean the New Zealand National Anthem is so much better than ours yeah, it's just yeah. crap yeah. I don't know if it has be any, it's I don't think it would sound any better if you sang it in a different language yeah, but I know. remember someone saying to me at dinner well, we were at this dinner somewhere one of the tourism awards or something and this person just put me on the spot and said oh why can't we have an Indigenous National Anthem and I said well we can but it's got to have 350 <laughs> verses <laughs> so we can all have one each yeah yeah it'd take a um, while so yeah but I mean I think sometimes it's good because again like people start to th- understand the diversity you know, they were not one big homogenous, and, yeah. and and look, and there's lots of discussions about whether we call ourselves First Nations or Indigenous or Aboriginal or Blackfellas or whatever. Mm. I mean, my old nan used to sort of do her head in a little bit, but I, I, I think, you know, Indigenous, Aboriginal, they all they, they all mean the same thing, and they're and they're not in our language anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. But somewhere, somehow, there's got to be you know for people to be able to un- understand what. You know, who we are in the, yeah, in the Australian yeah, I mean. landscape and that's and that's continually changes over time I mean I'm getting a little bit older and when I was young it was you know it was Aboriginal or you know my name sort of, they used to call them black, sort of Blackfellas well they'd say which mob they are and then now we're going mm. to the sort of First Nations which seems to be adapting other areas spaces um, so God knows what'll happen Yeah, next.
2: I, mean, I mean language is obviously quite important it's been a big focus on language recently to some too or maybe kind of pointless effect but it is kind of uh it's, it's an education for people to kind of learn about and to to you know just ask what what the best language is to use really yeah like it, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of as easy as that i was just like well, well and the
0: fact that we don't have a written language obviously language is extremely important as is mm. as is songs and traditions and that was how you know and and stories and and stories that retain knowledge around how you do things and mm. How you manage things in the environment are are super important. So I think that's really good. It's it's yeah. It's it's. I think it's just good when people understand. And I think currently, of some of the discussions I've had with um, some of the webinars we've done is people have during COVID have become very locally focused. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a pretty cool thing. I think that can help also be similar with with your you know what you want to know about Indigenous people is you know what is what is your it is around you and as a landscape and yeah i mean people the fact that they are going finding it's in the city i mean i'm obviously in sydney i was fascinated about how many people all of a sudden have decided that they need to go and walk in, in the nearest piece of bush every day yeah and it's yeah. because you're on zoom the rest of the time <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what happens you so you can't you can't you gotta have zoom happy hours so but yeah <laughs> and i think that people started to get a little bit more familiar with where they they, they live and familiar with the the, the places nearby them and I, and, and I think similarly I think they started to get more familiar with thinking about well okay what, what, whose country am I on and, and mm. what was it like and what is it like and who are they
1: yeah yeah. cool anything else
0: no no I think we're good, <laughs> think we're good. how can
1: people uh, how can people find Yerobingen?
0: well if you google us you'll get au. it's probably the easiest thing so you can you can contact us through that space obviously um, on Instagram and Facebook Instagram's where we pump out the most stuff I'm not really good on Facebook, so that's someone else in my team. <laughs> it's uh, just Yarra Bingen in on Instagram. Yeah, oh, yeah, or if you want to follow myself, I'm at Heathen Black. am <laughs> <Well, I'm> nice. I <laughs> play on my name of Christian. because <laughs> <laughs> I am not one. <laughs> 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 I explained to some non-Australian people that in Australia we like to do that. If someone has red hair, we call them blue, and that is yeah, why yeah. I'm called Christian, because I'm a heathen. <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. All right. Cool. Uh, if uh, people
1: want to get in touch with this podcast, they can email us uh, thefoodfightpodcast at gmail.com dot um, and follow the Food Fight Podcast on Instagram as well. Uh, if you're out there and you want to talk to us, we want to talk to you. So get in touch. Get in touch because that's what we do. We talk to people.
0: Christian, thank you so much for joining Thanks, us, mate. That's Thanks good. for your time. Thanks for putting up with all the noise. <laughs> <laughs>